Welcome back to Kingdom Cast. This is Bad Luck Chuck. I am back. Uh, I'm sorry if you guys missed me earlier last week. You know, I did pop in. But um, I just want to say uh, thank you all for tuning in. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, share on all your social media platforms. Uh, to the top right-hand corner is my guy, Country. Uh, to the bottom left-hand corner is my guy, Boogie. And our special guest this week, to the bottom right-hand corner, uh, he's currently TV color analyst uh, for Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, he currently works for the Big Ten Network and ESPN as well, covering multiple sports all across college. Um, he's a former Kansas City Chiefs wideout, six years. Uh, we'd like to welcome Danny Hughes this week to Kingdom Cast. Danny, how you doing this evening? What's going on, fellas? I'm doing good. Weekends here, holidays. It's all good. I'm, I'm you know, it, it, this is kind of my wind down period. I got a little bit more baseball broadcast to to do over the next couple of weeks, and then I get my break until football season. So I'm amped up about that. And I'm also amped up about the football season coming up too. So yeah, it's all good. Yeah. You're a man of all trades, man. Uh, you pretty much do everything these days. So <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm like, uh, what is that on living in living color? When they used to say Jamaican, you got 18 jobs. That's <laughs> got like 18 jobs, man. But it's good. I like same movie. <laughs> What's our night per se? <laughs> yeah. but, uh, to start things off, though, man, uh, let's get into your um, playing career a little bit. The Kansas City Chiefs. So uh, you was you was there six years. Um, yeah. Every all the years with Kansas City Chiefs. Um, you know, you got some time out there. You got some playing time. You was a special teamer. You got some time with wide receiver. Um, yeah. You know, all those teams in the nineties, they were great, man. Um, I just want to talk about, um, you know, once you got into the league, um, you know, what the process was like for you. And, you know, some of your great moments with the Kansas City Chiefs. Yeah, man. So I I was obviously – it's a unique story, very unique, because I played pro baseball for two years before I played with the Chiefs. And baseball is my first love. Anybody that knows me knows that baseball is, like, up here compared to football. It's always been that way. And um, so it was a tough choice to give up baseball, but I thought – I had a little ego, and I got drafted late. I broke my foot before the draft. So I went from, like, a second projected second-round pick to the seventh round, and I felt like I wanted to prove something. So I literally got drafted on crutches. I didn't participate in OTAs or rookie minicamp, uh, regular minicamp, or any of that. And then I just stepped on the field for the first time during training camp. And guess who they, they acquired during that offseason? Joe Montana at quarterback and Marcus <laughs> Allen at running back. So I'm on the field with four future Hall of Famers. I was drafted with Will Shields. And I'm basically on one and a half foot. And uh, I practiced as much as I could. The one thing that the crazy part of this story is, is that when I was drafted and I was limping through training camp, I assumed, this is how crazy it is, I assumed that all draft picks made the team. Hmm. So that, me being naive, made me more, more relaxed. Like, I was more relaxed in training camp. I just took my, like, I, would, I can't imagine if I'd have recognized that you could get cut if you drafted. I don't know how much anxiety, how I would have rushed myself back on the field, how my foot would have healed or anything like that. But I just kind of took it in stride. And there was two other things that I think was the reason why I made the team. Seventh round pick 
we had, you know, Willie Davis, J.J. Burden, Tim Barnett, Fred Jones. They had a good, solid core of receivers. And I had a really good re uh, reverse against the New England Patriots in the last preseason game. Went for 40 or so yards. And I got in a fight with Dale Carter in practice. <laughs> oh, man. And, and Mar I think, you know, Marty Schoenheimer, you know, rest his soul, was a fiery guy, defensive guy. He liked hard-nosed guys. And I wasn't no punk. I mean, I liked to fight, on, especially on the football field. And me and, D me and Dale got into it. And I think Marty kind of liked the fact that I'm a rookie and I'm, you know, I'm willing to stand up for myself against these cats, these crazy, crazy dudes on defense. And uh, I think those two things kind of helped me make the practice squad. I was on practice squad for the first 10 weeks, and I made my NFL debut on Monday Night Football against the Buffalo Bills. And, and that was, you know, uh, Jim Kelly versus Joe Montana, Bruce Smith, all those cats. And I remember I never punt return in my life. I kicked return in college. And I played wide receiver, but I never punt return, and I never covered kicks. And Marty came up to me and was like, we are we can activate you. Can you punt return? Obvious answer, yeah, I, I want to play. Yeah, I'm a, I could do it, and I'll figure it out. And they put me out there Monday night football to punt return against the Buffalo Bills. I never caught a punt in my life. And why I, one, this is part of the story why I always encourage athletes to play multiple sports. I hate, I hate when people talk about specializing in one sport when they're young. I played three sports growing up, played two sports professionally, two sports in college. And as long as you can play multiple sports, for anybody out there listening that got kids, play multiple sports. And the reason why I say that is how I was able to be good at punt returning, because I knew how to go back on a fly ball in baseball. Mm. But I, knew how to, I knew how to judge the ball. And, that, and all it was is after that, judging it is just about using your hands. And I had good hands. So that actually allowed me to have a career in football by some of my baseball stuff that I was able to bring over. I was a third round pick in baseball. I was drafted with Derek Jeter, Jason Giambi, Jeff Hammond. Uh, I mean, I was I was drafted with some good players and we were all in the top three rounds. And um, so football, you know, that rookie year went through. We went to the AFC championship. Lost to Buffalo after we beat them up at Arrowhead early in the season on my debut. And um, so that was my rookie year. It was a fun experience. And I would have thought, I could have swore that we would get back to the AFC Championship again and possibly run for a Super Bowl, and we never got back. So that was the loan. That was the last game that we had won in the playoff. My whole career, and then up until, what, Seven years ago when Alex Smith um, and the Chiefs beat the Houston Texans when Niall uh, Davis ran back that opening kickoff. So all of those years stand, you know, we was in a hole as a Chiefs organization in the postseason, but I was part of that last win. Wow. Man. I was going to ask you because uh, I got a young son. Me and Boogie have young sons. I was going to ask you about the sports thing. Is it cool? Because my son, he's on three right now. So next year, I'm probably going to get him in the T-ball. I was going to mm -hmm. ask you about mixing the sports and what, what sports would benefit him 
in different ways. Because I, I feel like soccer would help him with his speed and his hand-eye coordination and all that. Yeah. And then that'll help him in baseball and help him in football and how they balance off of one another. So I'm glad you said that. I was really going to ask you about that. You stole my question. <laughs> I believe I got five kids, two boys, three girls. My oldest is 34. My youngest is 20 years old. So I've been through the gambit of soccer, volleyball, basketball, baseball, football. And I believe that there's two sports that as a kid, you got to want to play. You can't play because mom and dad want you to. You can't play because your friends are pressuring you. It's football and wrestling. Those are two sports that you got to want to play. You got to want to be out there and be hit and hit people. The other thing is baseball has got to be something that's got to be a passion or that they like because no kid want to stand out there at 95 degrees for two and three games a day in the summer, and they really don't want to be there, and they might only catch a ball three times in the game. They might only get two at-bats in the game. So they got to want to be out there. And I coached baseball, travel baseball, elite-level high school travel baseball for 11 years, and that was my passion. I coached football two years at least some in high school, and I would never coach football again because baseball is my thing. I mean, football, it's a mindset. Like, I'm, like I'm a little twisted. I'm, I'm going to tell you. Like, there's a part of me, like, you got to be, a, you gotta be a, a sandwich short of a picnic to to want to <laughs> run into a wedge and just to cheer. You think about the mindset. Of, I was a six – in six years, I was four times I was a team captain in special team. And you got to, like – Think about the, the whole concept of being a special teams knucklehead, kamikaze dude. You basically are running back then in the wedge when they didn't care if we got concussions or not. You ran into a wedge full speed, got yourself knocked loose, wake up, shake up, get back out, and then you cheer for your team to get the ball back to score another touchdown so you could do it again. Like, how <laughs> stupid, how, how crazy do you got to be Thing like that, right? So that was my career, but I just think in football, you got to, if you got kids, you got, they got to want to be out there. You can push them along a little bit, but they got to want to be out there. But I am strong, strong against kids playing one sport. There's so many coaches, college coaches that will tell you, and I still interview college coaches, they'll tell you, we want to see multi sport athletes. We want to see athletes. We'll help them be better football players. We'll help them be better basketball, baseball players, but we want them to be athletes. And when I was being recruited in high school, I had more college coaches, college football coaches coming to my basketball games to see me. Joe Paterno, Tom Osborne, Hayden Fry, um, Jack Bicknell, all the schools up and down Syracuse, all these schools, Maryland, that was all recruiting me. They came and watched me play basketball. And part of the reason is they would say, we could see your body. We could see your, your, um, your facial expressions. We can see if you're a whiner or a crier. We can see if you're physical on the basketball court because film and football may not show all that. It might not show your demeanor and how you might break down your teammates or how you might complain or whine or cry. So, like, that was a wake-up call for me when they were recruiting me back in 1988, 1987, and telling me that stuff. 
Uh, we can see your physicality. We can see your build because you don't have big shoulder pads and pads on. So I am totally an endorser of multi-sport. Like, go out, play as long as you can play. Use something from one sport to help you with the other sport. And whatever is your favorite or whatever you're best at, that will come out. Like, that'll come out in the light at some point, whether it's in high school or junior high, it'll come out sooner or later. But just play multiple sports and stay busy and have fun. So, so Danny, when were you ever a kid? I mean, <laughs> you played football, baseball, basketball. Like, when were you ever home uh, in a coloring book or something? <laughs> Man, look, I, my, you know, I grew up in the city. I'm, bo I'm born and raised five minutes from New York City uh, in Jersey. And just like a lot of us growing up, you you, you stayed out until the, until the street lights came on. Right. And you weren't supposed <laughs> to be in the house. So right. <laughs> I'll have to figure out stuff to do. And I, I've always been like that. And even going into my adulthood, like, I don't know how to do one thing. Like, I played multi-sports. When I got a job after football, I was doing broadcasting on the side. Now I, I manage a mortgage division with U.S. Bank. And I still do broadcasting for the Chiefs and baseball and basketball and football. Like, I can't sit still. There's been something... <laughs> It's been something that was bred in me from a little kid that, uh, I, you know, sitting still and being idle, like, I get fidgety. Like I, I, like, I feel like I'm missing something. So at 50 years old, I'm still staying active. I'm still doing a lot of things. But I think it was just something that was, like, planted in me when I was younger. And I like, I like the zigzagging. I just like to do stuff. I like to be active, be involved. I do, I'm involved in charities fundraising for charities. You know, we're, we're just real active with the Chiefs ambassadors around Kansas City. And, and then, I, you know, I mentor kids. I coached kids in baseball that played college and pro baseball. Uh, so, you know, that's where I get my satisfaction along with my kids and grandkids. So I've been blessed. That's great, man. Um, yeah, that's, that's awesome. that's, go ahead. Go ahead, Boo. Go ahead, Boo. Go ahead, bro. It sounds like that, that playoff getting to play against Buffalo, that was like the big point for you. Who was the best player that you played with, you think? Ooh, I know you had the best defense. He was a little older, but who, who was the best player you played with? So, I mean, there's, there's so many great stories and great ex experiences that I've went through as a player that just show greatness of those guys. Like, Joe, I see, I never saw a guy before Patrick Mahomes, I had never seen a quarterback throw a curveball with a football, like throw it around a defense, a de defender to a receiver on purpose. And I saw Joe do that. Marcus Allen was a, the ultimate consummate professional, would practice hard, would run all the way to the end zone every single time he ran the ball in practice. And, you know, Derek Thomas, how he showed up on game day. I mean, I played with a lot of dudes that – was about greatness, like Will Shields. Me and him were drafted together. And then he goes on to have his career like he did. And, you know, it was just amazing. So, but Dale Carter was the best defensive back I had ever been on the field with. And I played against Dion. I played against a, a lot of pro bowlers. But you talk about a freak athlete that was kind of crazy too. Like <laughs> Dale Carter was ridiculous. 
And, um, you know, I've seen him do stuff on the field. Like, he would play, and his shoulder pads wasn't even buckled. And he wouldn't, wow. like, he wouldn't have a mouthpiece in. He would, he would have um, chewing tobacco in his mouth. And, like, <laughs> crazy. crazy stuff. His chin strap, you know how your chin strap is supposed to be buckled all the way up yeah. and tight? His right. chin strap would be hovering right here so he could talk trash. Like, it was the bizarre, most bizarre, off-the-wall stuff. But he was the most freakish I've seen. Like, like I've seen <laughs> I, like stories, yo. I don't know how much time we got, but I could go on and on about, like, the, <laughs> I mean, like, Dan, like have, you know. Must yeah, like, man. one time we was in practice. One time we in off-season practice. We come in. You know, guys hung out the night before, so everybody's not all there. And um, Tamar Vanover and James Hasty start talking trash about who's faster, just like we see with McColl and Tyreek and all that. That goes on all the time. Who's faster? Right. So those guys start stretching, throw money out, and they're going to rate a 40-yard dash against each other. So I'm sitting on the side. Dale's sitting next to me. He's half asleep. And um, this is before we <laughs> even work out. And so then those guys are going back and forth. They stretching, getting in their track stances and all that stuff. And Dale, Dale just stepped, wakes up. He's like, man, F y'all. I'll whoop both of y'all. <laughs> and the cat, so the cat jumps off the seat. His shoes are untied. He hasn't stretched. He just basically woke up, jogged down to the start line. He said, all right, I'm ready. And blew them cats out the gym, waving at him as he walked past the the, the, the uh, waving at him behind him as he went past the finish line. Oh, and, man. I was like, and I'm sitting at the finish line because I'm thinking it's going to be like a photo finish. And this is before cell phones. So I'm like, I got to sit here and I got to watch because these cats got money on it. Right. And Dale's walking. He's running by waving at those cats. I'm like, yo, that's the most freakish thing I've ever seen. Right out of waking up and blow by those cats. It, it, like so, so to answer your question, like I've always been in awe of what Dale Carter did, how he used to play, and he's probably the most fiercest defensive player I ever played against. Yeah, I recently seen uh, I recently seen Deion Sanders uh, uh, say something about Dale Carter on uh, the I Am Athlete Show podcast recently. He said Dale Carter don't get the respect that he's deserved, but he's a freak. But since you brought up Dale Carter. So what did y'all get into a fight about, man? <laughs> I was on the field. We was on, like, he got a little extra physical. I'm a physical receiver. And it was a little, you know, a little jostling extra, just like you see in training camp with a lot of teams. Yeah. You get tired of hitting each other. You waiting to hit somebody else. And then some cat do something to make you feel like you got disrespected. And when we just started throwing haymakers at each other. And then <laughs> the coaches and everybody had to come over and break us up. And – like, I think, Martin, you know, a lot of times, I'll tell you the truth, a lot of times those coaches be like, break it up, break it up, break it up, y'all teammates, y'all teammates. And then when everything stopped, they go back and they're like, yeah, you saw them Bain and Swoon, or you saw Dale, they like that stuff. <laughs> they really like that stuff. So, all, you know, all that stuff that they say in the media about, you know, taking care of each other, deep down inside, they like when cats got a little extra fire into them, and they don't care. So, that, I think that's how Marty liked me. Yeah, that's typical training camp practice stuff right there. But um, I talk about Dale Carter, you know, quite often on Twitter, man, because, like, 
um, you know, back in the day, like when y'all was playing and stuff, I mean, Dale Carter was really like that. He was really up there as one of the best defensive backs in the league at the time. Definitely. Um, just the stuff he was doing, man. Man, we played, I think it was 1994, we played um, Steve Young and the 49ers, Jerry Rice and the 49ers. That was the first game, Montana against J uh, Steve Young at home at Arrowhead. And Dale, he cemented his legacy for his, his career in those first four games of that year. We played against Jerry Rice, Andre Risen, and like two other all pro, pro bowl type receivers, and he locked them down. And what was more impressive about him locking down Jerry Rice, not that, not just because he's the greatest receiver ever played, but he came to the sideline. So me and Dale would like on defense, they would stay and then we'd get in fourth down. So then I would come on the field and Dale would stay on the field so he could block the gunners on the outside. So then I would run off the field with him after we got the punt return and and the first down until I got called into the game as a wide receiver. So we would come off the field. He's like, man, this is like middle of the game. This is like third, second, second quarter. He's like, man, I'm going to go ahead and try this on, on Rice. I said, <laughs> I said, try? What are you talking about try? Like, this, you're supposed to have a game plan. You're supposed to have thought about all this. And, you know, you're supposed to have, your, you know, everything already set. So when you're on the field with the greatest receiver ever, you're supposed to, like, already be in sync. Yeah, man, man, F that. I'm going to go ahead and try this. I said, what? <laughs> I just looked at him in awe, and he went out there. He's like, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and try this. I'm going to try that. And, and, he, and he followed him all over the field, whether he's on the left side or the right side. And I think, I think Jerry had, like, four catches maybe or something crazy. That, and Dale locked him down, trying new stuff on the fly. So I, I was like, man, I got a whole different respect for you. That that's you got not only the skills to pull that off, but the guts to do it in that kind of circumstance with that kind of big, you know, in that big situation. So yeah, man, it was that cat was special. So do you think that 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 that's what contributed to his off the field issues too? He couldn't spread it on the field and off the field? Do you think that's why he got him in a lot of trouble? You know what? My father always says to this day, some things that make you laugh or make you cry. And that's real. And I say that because what I, like when you're in high school, if y'all played sports in high school or you've been around sports, especially football, like Friday and then into the evening before the game, like, cats are on edge. Like, you carry that all day. Like, you read it all day. And I used to be like that all day, Friday, Saturday in college. Like, you on tilt. Like, you ready to go. And in the NFL, it was different. And what I realized when I became a pro is you have to have a light switch mentality. Like, you got to be able to turn it on and turn it off. So, like, in the NFL, like, in pregame, we're sitting there, we're getting dressed in the locker room. You got cats shooting dice. You got other guys playing tongue, playing spades, you know, reading the newspaper, stuff like that. And then the coach or the strength coach would come in and be like, five minutes to game, five minutes to warm up. And you would, you would swear like a dark cloud went over the whole locker room. 
because cats went from talking trash and shooting dice or, or slamming down dominoes to game time. It's time to go. It's like it was like like a dark like a like a darkness went over cats. They went to their dark side of their life in that time, and you start hearing cats screaming and hitting each other in the head and helmets and all that stuff, like getting fired up. But just like two minutes ago, you was playing dominoes and laughing. So I say that because a lot of times dudes in sports, because that's prominent, it happens in life, but I'll say in sports, they don't know how to manage that light switch. They don't know how to manage how to turn it off and turn it on like they do on the football field, and they let it seep over into real life. So I kind of believe based on based on that, I feel like that's where you see a lot of guys like Dale get in trouble. They just don't know how to turn off that switch when they're not off the field. Yeah, you're right about that, Danny, because, I mean, I've heard that stuff too, like regards to basketball players, you know, um, Phil Jackson with Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan, like they knew how to turn it on competitively, but like off the court, you know, Jordan was always competitive off the court, and then Kobe, he knew how to turn it off. So I definitely get what you're saying in that regard. Yeah, it's real. Yeah. Oh, that's good. So how did you, how did, how did you uh, figure out your off switch? Was it kids or family? No, no. I mean, I'm, I think I'm like this all the time. And I kind of figured out how to, like, I took the game personal. I took the game so personally that it was 100% opposite of what I was about in life. So, like, the game, before the game, I felt like if you was an opponent, like, I'm not helping you up. I'm not patting you on the back. Like, I hate you. You said something about my mama. You kicked my dog. You spit <laughs> on my sister. Like, I, like I, and I'm not exaggerating. Like, I really hate you for these 60 minutes. And then after the game, we can have a beer or we can sit down and, and, you know, and chat. But during this game, like, you're my worst enemy. So because that was so opposite of what I am, that made it in itself easy to turn the switch on and off because it was like a literally a dark side of me. And then I can go back to being regular Danon like after the game. So, so there's no Danon Hughes uh, jersey swaps after the game, right? <laughs> man. <laughs> this is <laughs> <laughs> Each day on, bro. I ain't never seen no war movie where they started handshakes at the end. <laughs> I feel your dad. I like I like that in you. I like that in you, David. So, like, uh, I want to ask you about the difference between today's game and your time playing playing in the nineties and stuff. Like, from your lens and your perspective, like. How much different is the game of football today in comparison to when you played back in the 90s? Because we all know about the physicality. I mean, that's completely different. Yeah. We're out of question. But anything else besides that from your lens? Yeah, man. I, I just think that I can appreciate the athleticism. I can appreciate how guys are taking more as a profession now where they're working together. You see wide receivers working out together in offseason. Remember – Tom Bahali and Joey Bosa, you know, going through moves, pass rush moves right after the game. I can appreciate that and I can respect that that's because that's what's real to them. Like they're not being fake. 
and I, and anybody that's not being fake, I can latch on to. Like I can respect that that's how you are. I just know that there was a <laughs> there was a stronger emphasis in pain and hurting your opponents physically when I played. Now, we didn't want Cass to be carted off in regards to career and an injury, but we had a conscious effort of trying to make somebody hurt. Where we, could, where we would crack back block, cut block, all those different things, blindside blocks, like all that was legit. It was legal. And when we were sitting in the meeting room on Monday going over the film, like if somebody caught a pass, we'd be like, oh, nice catch. Oh, nice job, yo. But if somebody laid somebody out or cut blocked somebody and made them tumble, you'd hear a standing ovation in the, in the <laughs> meeting room. Because that's just how the game was played, whether you was a wide receiver or, you know, I played in the, in the era of big safeties. Cats that was 240 pounds. Steve Atwater, you know, Dennis Smith, you know, Eddie Anderson. You know, I mean, you, you had big cats that was back there trying to decapitate dudes. So it, it's a different era. I can, like, that's how I grew up and I can appreciate going through the, that battle. And now guys are different. And I don't knock them for it. I just recognize that it's just the game has evolved in a different way than I played it. So that's, that's where cats are now. Sometimes I wish it would be less buddy-buddy. But at times I also recognize that there's some cats that played with me and in my era that they are, they're, they're suffering bodily, mentally, physically, and you know what? I, I think it's for the better for for humans overall how the game's played now uh, than it was when I played. Hey, so is, is there anybody? Okay, go ahead, Boog. So it's safe to say that Bounty Gate wasn't that big of a deal. You think? Heck no. Okay. <laughs> no. And that happened all the time. Every team, like. I got I got five hundred. You walking down the tunnel? I got five hundred for the first cat that gets knocked somebody out. Oh, I got another hundred on it. Mm -hmm. Like that's that's now none of that stuff got paid, but it was just like like you amped up to the to the tenth degree, and cats just start saying stuff. So the the fact that there was actually a bounty gate and they were calculating stuff, like bounty gate, spy gate. Deflate gate, all that stuff that's happened, they're not the only teams that ever did it. They just were the ones that got caught. You know what I mean? It's just like every it's like cats stealing gas at the gas station or, you know, cheating on tests in school. Like you just the one that got caught. Not everybody else is doing it. You just the one that got caught. So I never got too deep into, you know, the backlash and, you know, the the band, you know, the put the hex on the Patriots or other teams that did that stuff because everybody was doing it in some way. So are, are there any other current guys in the NFL that, that, that kind of bring you back to those days that, that kind of give you that vibe a little bit? Hmm. Current guy. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty tough. <laughs> that's a good question, man. I can't think of anybody like that plays with a reckless abandon. Um, 
like that anymore. Like, I can appreciate guys that go across the middle, but it's a different – like, when I – as a receiver, like, I had to make a business decision. Like, when you go across the middle, you're making a business decision, conscious or subconsciously, because you know you're going to get hit. So you might as well catch the ball, because you know you're going to get hit. And right. now I just kind of, you know, retrain my mind to think, how would it be to know that you're not going to get hit when you go across the middle? Or that somebody ain't going to try to decapitate you like these receivers know now. They know that if somebody hits them above their shoulders, it's by accident. And nine times out of ten, it's probably not going to happen. So to have that mindset, it's like getting in somebody saying, how would it be to bat against Randy Johnson? Well, if you can tell me that 99.9% chance that he's – I know for a fact that he's not going to hit me, it's going to be pretty easy to get in the batter's box and swing the bat. Now, I'm not saying it'll be easy to hit, but it'll be easy to be in the batter's box and be comfortable. So, right. I, you know, that's kind of how I feel when you ask that question. I can't think of guys right now that play with, like, a reckless abandon that makes me like, ooh, okay. I like I like uh, the honey badger. I like how he's he freestyles on the field, and he goes by instinct a lot. And – I was a player that liked to use my brain a lot more on the field, recognizing stuff that's happening um, before it happened. So I can appreciate when I see guys that are not just more physically gifted than people, but they're actually like they're, they're playing chess on the field and still playing at a high clip. So guys like him, I, I really appreciate, you know, their, their way of playing. What about Abrams on the Raiders? I hate to get him any love, but he's a little reckless. <laughs> yeah, man, I can't give no love to no Raiders. I mean, I feel you on that. He's a crazy. I mean, he, he, you know, he's one of those cats to me, like Bill Romanowski, like Shannon Sharp, like, um, you know probably Ed Reed and and all those cats that you would love to be on the same team with them, but you would hate to play against them, right? And so I kind of feel like that's – when I watch him, I think there's a, there's a lot of extra stuff that's going on. And, um, you know, he makes himself a target. But if he's willing to be out there on that island and be a target, then so be it. And we took advantage of it. And I remember – you know, the touchdown play to go ahead up in Las Vegas last year was his fault because yeah. of the type of play that he was playing. And yeah. I made sure on the broadcast that I broadcast that. <laughs> and I made it I made, I made it vocal because, you know, that kind of took me back to my playing days where now I got to expose you because of all the extra stuff you did. Now I can do it as a, with a microphone instead of being on the field with him. Yep, exactly. I'm glad you pointed that out. That exact play right there. I said, that's what he get for being a crash test dummy. <laughs> so, yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, Danny, like, my thing with today's game is this. Um, I, I get protecting the players. You know, I understand that. You know what I mean? You want to extend their life, you know, beyond football when they get done playing and stuff. But it's just like with some hits, man, with, some, with certain hits, like, it's just part of the game, you know? And, like, yeah. college football, like, this targeted rule, it – it disgusts me because, like some of the some of the hits they reviewed during the replay, like I want to use Nick Bolton for example, the the Chiefs' first draft pick. 
Okay, so I remember uh, against Arkansas, he hit dude with his shoulder. Like, he wasn't above the head or anything. It was just a good, clean hit. It was just the impact was hard. But he yeah. got thrown out the game. So that's my thing. That's oh, Chuck, you know, yeah. you know uh, Chuck, you know, a good hit would be that that Cleveland Dirty Dan hit in the playoff game. Mm-hmm. Almost, well, yeah, that's a good example. Go low, you know what I mean? Like, how else could you, how else could you have a hit, hit? How else could you? How else could you have hit the guy? You know what I mean? So. Yeah. So for me, the whole um, legislation on hits and what's hits and not hits in the college game. Um, I like the college game aspect for one reason, not the one. I mean, I, I dislike I dislike it for the same reason as you said, getting guys thrown out. But I like that they will arbitrarily look at the review. And in the NFL, they automatically throw a flag. And most times that flag is going to stay, even if the hit isn't legit. Now, the ejection might be negated, but they don't pick up the flag. And I think that's dead wrong because if I hit somebody square and legit, you can't just because he he got thumped and fell back and might be hurt, you can't give them a whole new set of downs. Like that impacts the game more so than college. So um, I don't like when they throw kids out because here's the main reason. Because as an official, there's officials out there that played football. There's people in the upper office that make the rules that probably played football. Show me how I can hit with this and eight inches higher is this. And when you're running full speed and I'm running full speed and you make a move and I make a move, that eight inches is the difference between this and this. And yet you're going to penalize me for something that could be totally just a part of the game. Like, it's a part of the game. I'm running. I could be ready to square you up. And you shift or you drop your head, and now it hits me. Or I think they're also, and you probably won't hear many offensive guys talk about I think there should be – they should uh, they should uh, penalize the offensive guys. How many running backs, beast mode, and other guys that drop their head and run? Uh, Kareem Hunt makes a living out of that. And I, and I think he's running right. I think people appreciate it. But at the same time, like, why is it good for the offense that can, they can do that, but it's not good for the defense? So, I, like, I've been – I had talked for years about how the defensive side guys should be um, protesting. Like, there should be a leader within the NFLPA on the defensive side that says, yo, this is not monopoly money. Like you taking money, you taking thirty-seven grand out of my pocket because my head happened to hit his head. Maybe he initiated it or he made a shift. Like I just think that the league got it wrong in those circumstances, and I don't think they really are taking into consideration how nearly impossible at full speed it is to avoid hitting somebody with this and hit them with this. Daniel, if they did what you said with changing it with the offense, though, you don't think that would change the game a little too much for the offense? I know. Oh, I think it would change the game. I think it would change the game, but it also would shed light on a dumb rule. Like, you can't play football. I can understand you want people to form tackle. But if I got um, 
What's my man from the Titans? If I got a big running back or one of the big Derrick Henry or one of the big receivers bearing down on me, you want me to hit him like this when he can do this? Like that that doesn't make sense to me. And so I, I just think that it's it's lopsided. And um I think they would if they did penalize offense, it would shed more light on the how the rule is done and not so much, and then also how executing what they think is going to be correct is not is almost impossible. Excellent points. Excellent points. Excellent, man. Um, before, before we go into uh, the Chiefs, uh, as far as, like, you know, their death, you know what I mean, um, I want to ask you from your perspective as far as, like, preparing and, like, Actually, how long did it how long did it take you to um, grasp the playbook when you first got to the league? And like, what's behind learning the route tree? You know, kind of take us through that. Well, I mean, I came on when the Chiefs first got the West Coast offense with Paul Hackett and Joe Montana came on, and the West Coast offense, still used to this day by a lot of teams, is very wordy. A lot of words in the play, and you got to figure out schemes before you figure out plays. So schemes, whether it's a run scheme, if it's an outside run or inside run, then you recognize as a receiver, okay, if it's an inside run, I need to go get somebody and block inside. If it's an outside run, I need to block somebody on the outside. Um, passing routes. Uh, and and the, the thing about the West Coast offense is that it's very specific. So – we were taught a 12-yard hook is a 12-yard hook. It's not 13. It's not 11. It doesn't matter if it's third and 14. If a, if a hook is called, you run 12 yards. If an out was called, you run a four-step out. doesn't matter if it's third and 10. You run a four-step out. So a lot of times I think it's wrong, and I never make the mistake of it because I know that as a rule, but it's wrong when – analysts and people on TV and radio complain about receivers running short routes to, to first down yardage because a lot of the West Coast offense is about timing. So when Joe would drop back, he would drop back. So you visualize a quarterback, drop back, one, two, three, go. That's a three-step drop. There's no hitch. There's no, you know, pumping. It's one, two, three, plant your foot and throw Five-step drop, one, two, three, four, five, one hitch, throw. Seven-step drop, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, hitch, hitch, throw. And so if you're running routes in that timing, you can't go two more yards or five more yards just because it's a first down, right? So that's kind of how the West Coast offense was working. So when you talk about the playbook, it's like it's harder than any test that I've ever taken in my life. And um, but the crazy thing is that you get so deep into it that like when I go and I speak at different places or I go to talk to kids, I still got my last playbook with the Chiefs. It's that big. It's a three wing binder that big. And I still got it. We were playing the Raiders in 1998. We lost that game, which is the only time I lost to the Raiders in my career. And um, we um, but. I passed them. I passed the uh, the playbook around to people in in the audience, and then randomly I just be like, "Hey, open up the book and ask me a random play." And 
it was so ingrained in me that and I, like my last game was what 23 years ago 23 years ago and I still remember okay this is what he does this is what he does this is what he does this is what I do that's crazy on play, wow. random play in that playbook 23 years later so it's you know you dig in and and it's just about like it's your job it's your profession you're responsible for all the other cats in the locker room and you take it personal. So that's kind of how I did, but it's tough. Like a lot of that stuff, when you get to zip zap, red, red, right slot, flip, W zip, X shallow cross, Y curl, you know, you get all that. And then you got the audibles that you might have to get on the line of scrimmage. What's the live color, what the dummy color, the, the adjustments you have to make when they run an audible. Um, the blocking assignments, all that stuff, um, where you're supposed to release. Like, uh, like there's times where you're, you're supposed to release outside. Even if the DV pushes you out of bounds, and then they say on TV, that's a terrible route by, by uh, Sammy Watkins or whatever. The fact is Sammy had to run outside so that the defensive back would widen. So then that little spot route that Travis Kelsey catches for six yards and then runs for another 10, if he runs inside, that's an interception. Or Travis Kelsey gets earholed and knocked out of the game. So there, there's always a method to the madness that's involved that a lot of people don't really know about. That's all part of the offense. It's all part of the offense. So it, it, it's deep. It's deep. So we segue into that with that comment. Uh, what do you think about McCole Hartman as a route runner? We see the talent, we see the speed, we see the potential. What do you think of take him to that next level? Um, I think it's, and this is speaking from experience, not saying that I was anywhere near McCole Hardman, but I think it's extremely tough to be a receiver and only be on the field for a certain amount of time and never know when you're going to be on the field. And the feel you get on the field, the, the, the things you feel like you can exploit in a defensive back, um, th there's a lot to be said about that. If you think about the games where he played a lot, like against the New Orleans Saints when he had the nice touchdown catch in the back corner of the end zone, um, in the playoff game where he dropped the ball at the two-yard line, but then they came back to him on a, on a jet sweep and another d a pass on the next drive, like you got to get into the flow of the game. And I'd like to see – to me, I can't judge him until I see him play 50-plus plays on a consistent basis as a wide receiver. And I think if you look across the landscape of the NFL, you'll probably see most receivers, even some of the great ones, it's because they know they're going to be in the huddle. They know what plays are going to be called. They can get a feel for the defense and know exactly how they can exploit it because they're on the field all the time. But I also think that because of his size, um, he sh he short armed some balls, you know, in traffic, and I think he that's part of being on the field more is that you get a feel for the game. But I think you know with that speed you can't coach speed. I just think that he can be more polished. And now that Sammy's gone, I kind of feel like going into training camp, OTAs and training camp, like all you're doing is fending off cats that are behind you and if you can't get comfortable and be effective with that 
then maybe that you know you're just going to be a, a return specialist as a, a a receiver, a fourth receiver, or a rotation guy. Yeah, that's something of uh, you don't want as a second round pick just being a return specialist. Like you got drafted pretty high just to transition to being like maybe that future wide receiver number two, you know, alongside Tyreek. So, um, so basically, but you know what? I will say this. I will say this. You got Tyreek Hill that's five foot eight. Probably in Cleveland. Right. You how many how many teams in the NFL do you know that have receivers very efficient, especially in this type of offense, that both receiver starters are below six feet? Not below five ten. None. Mm-hmm. Not even in the history. Like even in the run and shoot back in the day, those guys, it was at least two of those guys that was six two, six three on the field. Haywood Jeffries or or those cats in, in the Houston Oilers back in the old days. Um, so I think that the, you know, when you, I don't think it'll be a bad thing if the season comes and McCall Hardman is not a starter, because I also think that the concept of the offense, the one thing that we've been lacking is a bigger receiver. We had Sammy Watkins, but he wasn't healthy all the time. And I think Sammy was the best receiver on the team. I don't think he, I don't think he was the best playmaker. I think he was the best receiver. And, um, so I think they need to have a bigger body out there. So I'm interested in Byron Pringle. Uh, I don't think D-Rob, I think he can, D-Rob is a serviceable guy, number four receiver. But I want to see who can step up as far as the bigger bodies, the draft pick. Because I one, one, two, the one, as lethal as the Chiefs offense is, it, how many times do you say the best offense in the league don't run two crucial plays that every other team runs? Those two crucial plays, we learned by five, we're not going to run a quarterback sneak, right, because of Patrick Mahomes and injury in Denver. So we're never, ever, 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 ever going to run a quarterback sneak again, right? But one other big play that every other team uh, throws throughout the history of the NFL that we don't. Do y'all know what that is? Jump ball. Jump ball fade, right, to wide receivers. We don't run fade routes. We run go routes, but we don't run 20-yard line, 15-yard line, 5-yard line, corner of the end zone fade route. And the reason, part of the reason I think we don't is because we don't have a big body, a taller receiver that is, that play is designed to be either I catch it or nobody catches it on a fade route. That's the design. Either I catch it or nobody catches it. And we don't have that presence as, as, a, as a receiver that will instill the confidence to, to run that play in the end zone. So I think that kind of hurts us. So that's why I think there's going to be an emergence of one of those bigger receivers that will be your number two. Uh, speaking of emergence as a wide receiver, uh, I'm glad you mentioned our one of our draft picks. I'm glad you mentioned Cornell Powell. Um, I've seen I seen a tweet about Lewis Riggs saying he has crazy potential, like the Chiefs got a steal in him. So what do you think about Cornell Powell, and how long do you think it will take for him to get a grasp of everything as far as the playbook and getting on the field and contributing? Uh, I mean, I think what we've seen in rookies, that Andy Reid and um, Eric Bieniemy do a great job of schooling these guys to where they are comfortable with the packages that they bring on the field. So I don't think that Cornell is going to have any kind of grow, uh, you know, learning phase. 
I think by the time preseason comes, which is this year, they'll actually play preseason games. So rookies won't be behind the eight ball like they were last year. Um, that he'll be comfortable with the package and information that he's going to have to bring. He's not going to have to worry about running the, the motions like Tyreek and McColl where they do the whirly bird behind the quarterback and so on. He's going to be a stationary receiver that might, might run motion from inside to outside. So there's a portion of the playbook that he's going to be designed to, to have to grasp. Um, but like to me, if there's no, be- there's no better incentive than playing with the best quarterback in the league, with the best offensive mind in the league at, at the coach position, uh, and you know, with the weapons around you to take some pressure off. So I think he'll, I think he'll, he'll come along uh, as long as he stays healthy and just play free. That's the great thing about this offense is that most of the guys that are successful, they are relaxed. They just play. They just go out and play like they're playing in the schoolyard somewhere. Yeah. Hey, so we know this is kind of dead in the water, but the Julio Jones rumors, what potentially does Julio add? What would he add to this offense? Is is that the big body guy that you that you that you're talking about that you're alluding to? Absolutely. Um, what's first of all, when Sammy, when we got Sammy Watkins, if you remember, we assumed a $16 million salary. As Sammy Watkins, right? So it's not so far off that the Chiefs, knowing that they had Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey, go out and get a high-dollar receiver that's on a short contract. So it's not way out of the realm of possibility. Also, um, if you really want to cement yourself as a force, an extra force, going to get Julio Jones would show everybody in the league, oh, my gosh, we got to deal with this? And we got to deal with that? And, and so I think it would be a great acquire. I think if you look through the history of the NFL, outside of the Patriots, every other team has had their window of time. The Indianapolis Colts, when they had Peyton Manning. The Green Bay Packers, between Favre and, and Aaron Rodgers. Um, Heck, the Buccaneers back in the early 2000s, late 90s. You had your window of time where you had to maximize your opportunities. The Steelers. I mean, you can go through the list. And that's why I love what they did in the offseason with the acquiring of offensive linemen. Uh, I love when they take chances on, um, you know, getting a Tyron Matthew, getting a Frank Clark identifying weaknesses and not being afraid to jump out and go get somebody to fill those weaknesses. A lot of times you look at around the league, teams just dance around stuff. They don't want to ever admit that they have a weakness that they need to fill. They just kind of dance around it and fill it in, sprinkle in. While the Chiefs say, you know what? D4, Eric uh, Eric Berry, Tom Mahali, Justin Houston, we cannot defend. We cannot depend on you anymore. Guess what we're gonna do? Draft Chris Jones. Go get Frank Clark a few years later, and go get the Honey Badger. Now we got wide receivers. Dwayne Bow coming to, down to the end of your time. We're going to get Tyreek Hill, and we're going to get Sammy Watkins after that. Now you know um, this year offensive line abysmal in the Super Bowl. 
undependable because of injuries, guess what we're going to do? Orlando Brown, Kyle Long, Tooney, Blythe, Niang, and a draft pick. Like, you know what I mean? So this is a team that makes it known that we, you know, they're transparent. They might not say it out loud, but in the decisions that they make, they say, you know what? We recognize where we need to be stronger and we're going out because this is our window of time with Patrick Mahomes and we're going to maximize that. And um, how much more could you appreciate it? So in your answer to, to, to getting Julio Jones, to me, it would fit right in line. Like if you really want to announce your presence and show that you're not to be messed with, go out there and get Julio Jones for one or two years and pair him up with Tyreek Hill and Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey. Like you think, you think um, Gruden and, and those cats won't be scared just a bit. Oh yeah. It's game over. It's game over. If uh, Julio somehow comes here. And I don't believe, and I say all that because I don't believe in the salary cap either. I think the salary cap is smoking mirrors. I think anytime, how do you have, how do you have a salary cap where you can manipulate it, make people take pay cuts, cut people, and restructure guys' contract to get under it? Like, how do, you, how is that a cap? There's no and cap. It's going, and it's going up it's twenty-five million next year. Yeah, it's, I mean, but that's that's all smoke and mirrors because have you, you never heard a team say we didn't keep somebody that they really wanted to keep or we didn't get somebody that we really wanted to get because if, if there's a cap, that would be true. But if there's not a cap, then really it's just that you don't you don't want to restructure stuff to get that person. Yeah, uh, yeah, right. And then what was it? Last year we were like two hundred dollars over the yep. cap. Yeah. And then <laughs> what happened? Patrick Mahomes signs the biggest contract in the NFL history. Like, how is that possible when we were just two weeks ago two hundred dollars over the cap? Like right. it's just to me, it's just smoke and mirrors. It's just something to talk about. Uh it's a number to put on paper, but there's some smart cats in the upper offices in the NFL. They figure out ways to get dudes. Like, they're going to figure out a way to extend Tyron, Tyron Matthew. They're going to figure out a way to, you know, to pay Orlando Brown when he's ready, you know, when it's time to pay him. They're going to figure out ways. So how's their cap? Right. Yeah. Right. Because, I mean, there, that's been mentioned a lot, too. Like, um, you know, some fans still talk about salary cap. And I'm like, man, there are ways to work around it. And Tyron Matthew is one of them. You know, yep. extending him, and then, um, and then of course, the TV deal that's already mentioned. But I think there's another player that's talking about the contract being worked around. But if the Chiefs are really serious about getting Julio Jones, there's a way. There's a way to do oh, it. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, there's a way. Well, man, this has been incredible. Um, uh, thank you for sharing with us. Thanks for the Dale Carter stories. We definitely got to get you back. We need more Dale Carter stories. I want to hear everything about Dale Carter. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm intrigued. I just want to hear everything about Dale Carter from now on out, man. We definitely appreciate yeah, I gotta you. Keep some, I got to keep some of those to myself. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you got my number. Call me. I'm, I'm here. <laughs> so, uh, hey, we definitely appreciate you coming on, sharing your knowledge, sharing your uh, – 
aspects of the game. Like you even answered my question about my son that I didn't know I wanted to answer or ask, and you answered that anyway, man. I appreciate you so much, uh, man. Uh, best of luck to you. It's gonna be a great season. Um, Thanks, man. Definitely gonna keep in touch and definitely keep watching you. And uh, you're doing a great job, you and Mitch. Y'all two of the best Thank in the business, in my opinion. And, yes, sir. Thanks, man. It was definitely a blessing of a first year last year. I'm excited for year two in the booth with Mitch. You know, being being you know not being a superstar, but being put in this position after years of doing other stuff in media uh, and being for the team that I played for my entire career. It's been a blessing. So. I got a chance thinking I never have a chance to to be in a Super Bowl, and I got a chance to do that last year. So I'm looking forward to getting a Super Bowl win. Hopefully it'll be this year. This year. It won't be the last one. Yes. It won't be the last one. <laughs> All right. We definitely need that for you, Danny. We definitely need to get that Super Bowl dub for you, man. So, yes, sir. Yes, sir. But so, Chuck, take us out, bro. So, yeah, we'd like to thank Danny Hughes again for joining us this week on Kingdom Cast. Um, again, don't forget to like, subscribe, share all your social media platforms, comment. And until the next episode, we are out of here. Appreciate it. Hey. Bye, y'all. <laughs>